Welcome to the Reimagined Medicine Podcast. We look forward to delving into topics that are shaping clinical care, medical research, medical education, and challenging us to reimagine medicine. Each month, we bring together clinicians, researchers, educators, healthcare thought leaders, and medical students to share the experiences and ideas that are fueling their efforts. In this episode, we will discuss the intersections of disability and medicine. I'm Dr. Johnny Lifshitz. And I'm Dr. Katie Bright. We are faculty members at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Thank you for joining us. So we are going to talk about teaching, delivering, and advancing healthcare for patients with access challenges. What are the barriers for those with disabilities to access healthcare? We've brought together experts who are champions in the exciting initiatives to overcome these challenges. By engaging physicians, patients, caregivers, policymakers, and communities, they are empowering abilities. We're glad you are with us. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and do not represent the opinions of the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, or Banner Health. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, consult your personal family physician for medical care. Okay, well, joining us tonight is Dr. Fernmi Okunlami. And Dr. Okunlami is an assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, as well as director of medical student programs in the Office for Health Equity and Inclusion at the University of Michigan. I'm a Michigander, so go blue. Go blue. Welcome to Phoenix. Thank and you Thank so you much. very much for taking the long trip our direction to share all of your wonderful things and your journey with our campus. Well, you don't have to give me much thanks coming in March or April. If this were June or July, it might have been more difficult, but no. <laughs> Thank you so much for the invitation. It's glad to join you. So I think we'll just start with that. Your journey to becoming an attending physician through residency is really incredible. Would you share a little bit about your journey with our listeners? Sure. So in my third year of orthopedic surgery residency, I ended up having a spinal cord injury, which then left me paralyzed from my chest down. I had some inpatient rehabilitation in Chicago and was blessed with some return of motor function. And then I ended up finishing up a family medicine residency in South Bend, Indiana at Memorial Hospital. And then after that, I went back to where I did my medical school, which was University of Michigan. And so I was blessed with the opportunity to join a faculty in family medicine. And based on my experience and my injury, I was also able to have a conversation with the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. And that's why I have a joint appointment in those two. So it's really been an, an interesting path, but an opportunity, I think, to, to leverage some of the background I have from musculoskeletal care and orthopedics, mm-hmm. my primary care background, and then my own personal life experience, too. That's amazing. Finding a way to kind of merge all of the things that you are passionate about anyways. Yeah, it's, it's really been, as I said, an, an opportunity and a blessing because I realized that people gave me a chance to then be able to leverage those things instead of using those as reasons to count me out. And so I really, I'm indebted to the University of Michigan for being open enough to consider the different possibilities. It allows me in a way, I think, to advocate for a population of patients that oftentimes does not have as much of a voice. So I thought I would just bring that maybe one step further because you're also an attending physician, you're an educator. So I know that sometimes um, we have different paths, but we're both family physicians. And I have often really liked being able to model being a mommy and a doctor and being, you know, you can have life, work-life balance. You can have a baby in med school, a baby in residence. You can do this. You clearly have that as well as a different perspective, again, being a physician and an educator with disabilities. Now, how do you bring that into your world of education with the students? So 
at the University of Michigan, one of my colleagues, her name is Dr. Lisa Meeks, and interestingly, she's actually starting a podcast that's called the Docs with Disabilities Podcast, oh. in which what we're hoping to do is to bring the stories of many physicians and educators and nurses around the country in healthcare that have disabilities to do precisely what it is that you mentioned, to model the fact that there are people with disabilities that are still practicing medicine or nursing or other aspects of healthcare and living their lives. And so one of the things that we do is I have students that know that they can call upon me, and one of them did just on the way here today, to talk about some of the difficult aspects of living life with a disability that other people may want to understand but that can't mm -hmm. in the same way. And just like you model being a mommy to your to your students and show them how that's something that is important and should be valued rather than seen as lacking dedication to your profession, I think it's important to allow people to realize that taking care of themselves is important. Mm -hmm. And if you have certain needs that may seem to exceed the needs of some of your peers because of how quote-unquote complicated your medical past may be that you shouldn't feel less than by doing so and that's something that by trying to be authentic with my students and showing my vulnerabilities and I show it to my students and my patients because I think that we are educators not just to the students that we teach but to our patients as well. So recently we've kind of looked through all of our curriculum here and so it's kind of timely that you're here kind of looking at our rehab medicine and also our caring for persons with disabilities curriculum to sort of see where is it delivered in the curriculum and how could we be better based on student feedback and just kind of did an, did an audit throughout our four years. Do you have any pearls or tips for the best way to deliver curriculum on on caring for persons with disabilities to students? So that is that is a million dollar question. And one of the things that I say is that I'm not the first or the best or the only, and especially at the University of Michigan, we are blessed with a wonderful group of physicians in family medicine and in physical medicine and rehabilitation that have been doing this work before me. And for example, there's another researcher in our department. Her name is Dr. Michelle Mead, who just the other day, we were talking about trying to effectively teach people how to transfer individuals within the clinic visit to then get on or off the examination table. And she has already created a set of videos that they use to try to teach some of these things. Oh, cool. And so I think that there are multiple places that are touch points where we can do that. Another thing that I talk about is the standardized patient experience. So the, you know, the model patients that we use from in many medical schools to teach our students to do the physical exam and to take a history. And one way is if you have individuals with disabilities that are these model patients, then the first time a student sees this isn't when they're a resident or a faculty right. member. They've been able to then see that in real life. And one thing that I think is important is having an individual that has a disability be a model patient, not just because of their disability. You may be doing the pulmonary exam on someone in a wheelchair, and it's not focusing on the fact that they're in a wheelchair, right. but that's not that's not the first time that they see someone in a wheelchair later on in their life. Mm -hmm. And one thing we learned during this curricular audit was we were calling it rehab medicine and caring for the disabled, and we had many of our our standardized patients and our our this caring for those with disabilities panel say, just because we have a disability, we don't consider ourselves necessarily disabled. So I think that's an interesting point too. Just even our even our faculty had some learning to do as far as delivering the curriculum to our students. Oh, and when you say even our faculty, I'll go one step further and I'd say especially the faculty, actually, because I think that we are getting to a place in our world where we are we're better able to support individuals with disabilities such that things 
things are more open and we're having more conversations and we're allowing people to then express themselves in ways that weren't necessarily done before. And so when people say, oh, even our faculty, I say sometimes, and it needs to start with the faculty because Mm -hmm. the students may have a better understanding because they went to a school that was inclusive. That's a great point. Mm -hmm. So um, what you have said one of your dreams was is sort of to see a completely accessible and inclusive health system for patients and providers with disabilities. Can you expand upon this? What do you think that would take to create that? The first thing I think it needs is it needs an institution. It needs to start with an institution that truly values this as a culture change. Because one of the things that I have learned in my brief time as an attending is that there is a lot of bureaucratic red tape that goes into implementing change within a large health system. And it is not necessarily always someone's fault. It is just the way that it takes to really turn a ship that's that large. Hmm. And if the institution does not believe in the culture change itself, there are many, many places where that can be derailed. One of the things I talked about was having people at the table that then understand some of the things that need to be changed and allowing them to have a voice that is heard. Because as I said in the last statement, a lot of times the people that are already at the table don't necessarily have the best understanding. And when they're the ones left to that implementing change, change won't occur the way that is necessary. So I think that it's not an easy task, but I think the most important part is institutional buy-in from leadership to say we are dedicated to at least figuring out how we can do this. Then when you get that, you can start to tackle the individual questions of the how. I was hoping maybe you could share um, for all of our listeners who might be persons with disabilities or, or our providers that are listening to, especially because we both practice primary care, what would be some tips where, um, as a patient, they might feel empowered to be able to talk openly and, and build that relationship with their primary care provider or for our primary care providers to be able to build that trust with their patients? So I have a unique perspective that other people have as well, but being a patient and a provider at one point, but which is something that I actually tell providers is that we are all patients at some point. And so I think in medicine, we create this difference at times that the provider-patient relationship is a dichotomy in a way. But if you yourself think about what it's like to go into a physician's office, you have a medical knowledge that allows you to make certain assumptions about what will happen or what should happen in a way that most of our patients don't, right? But similarly, the patient may assume that the physician knows more about their particular disability than they do because they expect that in going to the physician, they know this. So this truly is about building trust and rapport. And it's something that we tell our students all the time. And one of the things that I do before I even say anything about medicine and my appointments is I just have a conversation with my patients. Now, this is difficult in the current setting because we both know that we don't have a lot of time to be able to do that. But my thing is I run a little bit late and I know it because I give that opportunity for my patients to be able to ask what may sound like a silly or embarrassing question. I I make sure that I leave space for them to feel as though that that's something that's allowed Mm -hmm. as opposed to that they're being a burden to me. And I learn a lot more when the patient feels like they're not keeping me over time by asking a question. And I'm also very open about the fact that I don't have all the answers right away. And so I think that when you are open about what you do know and what you don't know on both sides, patient and provider that allows you to build a level of trust that as a primary care provider, it might not be at that first encounter that we get to the bottom of it, but the second and third and fourth Mm -hmm. encounter that we have, we've gotten to a point where we've given that opportunity. 
was wonderful. Creating that open relationship early. Um, one more question. Um, you're striving to disabuse disability, and I know that's something you mentioned um, in your in your discussion and in your many of your talks. Can you expand upon that a little bit? Yeah. So. I have a, a trademark actually now called disabusing disability to demonstrate that disability does not mean inability. Because I think that oftentimes we look at people that are different and we make assumptions about what we think they can or cannot do. But I think that if we allow people to show us what they can do, we'll realize that, you know, you mentioned it earlier that you had your course that was caring for the disabled. And lots of people said, just because we have a disability doesn't mean we feel we are disabled. And I'll use myself as an example. I, I sometimes say that what I do in a 24-hour period of time is likely more than some other people do in a 48-hour period of time. And why it is that we take the things that I cannot do, like I cannot walk like someone else can walk, why that is then used to then judge or categorize me in a way that says that I am unable or disabled. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a very interesting topic, though, and it's difficult because a lot of people actually claim the word disabled as almost a culture. And so we have to be careful not to assume that one person's perspective is everyone's perspective. And so I'm just giving my particular perspective, but my personal sort of goal is to let people see that just because someone may have a disability doesn't mean that you understand all the abilities that they actually have and you won't give them an opportunity to show those unless you give them a chance. Thank you. Unfortunately, and I could seriously, I could chat and learn from you all night, but unfortunately our time has come to an end. Thank you again so much for being with, with us, Dr. Okunlami, and I really appreciate everything that you've uh, brought to our campus and how you've enriched us. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It's been a pleasure spending time with you. Dr. Johnny Lifshitz serves as the director of the Translational Neurotrauma Research Program, which is a joint venture through Barrow Neurological Institute at Phoenix Children's Hospital, the Department of Child Health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and the Phoenix Veterans Affairs Healthcare System. Dr. Katie Bright is the chair of the Curriculum Committee and co-director of the Family, Community, and Preventative Medicine Clerkship at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, placing students with community clinical partners all across the state. She is a family physician and the vice president of primary care services at Bayless Integrated Healthcare. Welcome back to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We are pleased to have Daryl Christensen and Dr. Kara Christ with us for our conversation. Daryl Christensen is Vice President of Community Integration with Ability360 in Phoenix. Mr. Christensen oversees independent living skills training, home modifications, information and referrals, and independent living services to individuals with disabilities. All services aim to empower persons with disabilities to take responsibility for their lives and to live independently in their community. Dr. Kara Chris serves as director for the Arizona Department of Health Services. She is a University of Arizona College of Medicine graduate, and she has collaborated with health partners and stakeholders to develop strategic plans for advancing health care, including infectious disease prevention and control. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Good Thank to be you. here. <laughs> Thank you both for joining us. My first question is for you, Daryl. So for 35 years, I think it's 35 years, Ability360 
uh, Ability360 has offered amazing programs to empower individuals with disabilities, leading to independent lives, or, or at least helping people get as independent as possible. Could you just tell us more about this? Sure. Um, so Ability360 is one of almost 500 centers for independent living throughout the nation. There are five centers throughout Arizona, and each one has five core services that distinguish themselves from other nonprofits. We have information and referral. We have independent living skills training, peer mentoring, advocacy, and the newest one is transition, which is transition from high school to community. It's also transition from a nursing home to community and prevention from going into a nursing home unnecessarily uh, in the first place. Uh, Ability360 has one of the largest, it, we're one of the, actually one of the largest in the nation with an operating budget now of over $50 million. Um, and a lot of that really has to do with our attendant care or home care program where we employ over 2,800 attendants to go into the homes and provide daily cares uh, to keep people um, you know, bathed, dressed, and grooming each day back in bed at night and then they can productively live lives you know throughout the day then we have employment programs so getting people off ssi social security income or ssi uh, ssdi uh, social security disability and so getting back to work and being gainful taxpayers rather than being on the system um, we have a benefits to work program so we can sit down with if, with individuals and really show them what going back to work means for their benefits. So often it, it really is enhancing and empowering to go back to work and you're more financially independent as well. Uh, other services are social rec. We uh, have our youth program working in the high schools, home modifications, and we have a world-class sports and fitness center on campus, one of the most accessible sports and fitness centers uh, west of the Mississippi. So all told, we have a great deal to offer people with disabilities. And, and just to mention on the side, uh, here in the Valley, we have nearly a million people who have a permanent disability. Uh, and nationwide now, the numbers are around 61 million Americans that have a permanent disability that affects one or more major life activities. So Ability360 is working in Maricopa and Pinal counties. Now that's remarkable information. Uh, one of the activities that I engage in because my field of uh, expertise is in neurotrauma is working as the current chair of the Governor's Council for Spinal Cord and Head Injury. And so very familiar with Ability360 and even taking my kids down to see the wheelchair rugby, which is a remarkable event to engage with. And so that level of bringing, uh, bringing up the idea that disability is just other opportunities for others is really important. How, what opportunities are there for medical students? And this could either be active medical students or those that aspire to be medical students to engage with Ability360. I think, yes, good question. I think we can definitely grow on that area, uh, bring in folks to volunteer at different activities. The last couple of years, we have hosted the National Quad Rugby Tournament, but it's not just the, the real athletes that are maybe the world-class athletes and such, but it's folks that have a new disability coming out of rehab 
going back into the community and really getting plugged into the disability community and have that pride of having a disability and you know life may have changed with perhaps like you say a traumatic brain injury or spinal cord injury whatever it might be life has changed for not only that individual but also for their family but it hasn't stopped it's not over it's just a new way of doing life and um, we say also that acquiring or having a disability is an equal opportunity club. Anybody can join at any time. And to point out, too, that over half of our staff and governing board of directors are, in fact, folks with disabilities. So we're not just talking the talk. We're rolling the roll. <laughs> well said. So I actually have two questions. One, just a quick follow-up. So I, I'm familiar with Ability360, but definitely not with all of those amazing wraparound services. So that was very educational for me. So for our listeners, what's the access to those um, services like as far as coverage and um, how, they, how they would access those services? Right. So Ability360, for the most part, um, provides services at no cost to individuals. So going to Ability360.org, uh, we're located at 50th Street in Washington in Phoenix. Thank you for sharing that with us. A follow-up question, and you explained some of it as sort of lack of knowledge about accessibility, but what do you think are some of the other barriers preventing persons with disabilities for accessing the things they might need to lead more independent lives? Good question. I think there's three main areas of life that need to be addressed when looking at integrated life in the community. One is employment. Um, right now, we're still hovering at a 69% unemployment rate among people with disabilities. That's unheard of when the nation is hovering around 4% and minorities are in the 13 to 15% unemployment rate. Secondly, I would say that housing, affordable, accessible housing is a crisis in this nation. It is an absolute crisis where we have um, waiting lists where no applications are being accepted. When you have waiting lists of between one and four years long, if you get on the app, if, if you get an application in, uh, and the third one would be transportation. So I think you know, addressing those three areas, employment, housing, transportation, that can really take on a great deal of um, a lot of the issues. I, and really, I think another very important point for listeners to understand is that, that words reflect attitude. And the terms that we use to refer to folks with disabilities is so, so critically important. And that's where um, folks in training need to understand that you use person-first language. You're talking to the person. You're not talking to a diagnosis. And you're not talking to the family member. You need to talk to the individual. And because I've seen times where a, a physician might talk to a family member as if that patient or person with a disability is invisible. And the feeling that you have where you're being talked about and you're in the room and you're being talked about as if you're not there, that that's just a feeling that, that doesn't go away quickly. Yeah. So now you um, said that very eloquently. That's exactly um, the type of mindset that I hear being spoken about at the College of Medicine Phoenix in terms of cultural competency. And it's not just physical disability. It's the whole range of age, sex, gender, race, socioeconomic class to be able to use the right language, welcome and include individuals. 
in closing, do you have a nugget or a thought about what the one lesson you would want our medical students to take with them in order to be able to, you know, keep perseverating on while they're talking with these individuals? I, I think the, the, the key thing really is, Johnny, that you look at the person first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, you may be a world-renowned physician in the field, top of your game, and I've met a couple of these people, but their bedside manner <laughs> is so horrific that I, 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 I tell you, if you gave them a personality test, there would be no personality there. Hmm because they just don't have the bedside manner. They may have the world-class renowned uh, resume, but unless you look at the person and talk to them as a person first, the rest of your knowledge goes to waste. Yeah, Katie, I think we can chalk that up to one of our knowledge nuggets. I agree. And Daryl, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us tonight. And I, I think there was a lot in there, but especially for our training providers and our practicing providers um, to just incorporate into their practice. And I just really thank you for sharing with us. Well, thanks for having me, both of you. Appreciate it. Thank you. So Dr. Christ, I wanted to just sort of turn the, the conversation your direction. Many physicians have overcome barriers in their lifetime, in their careers. I would, was wondering if you could share a little bit about your special journey and your story and kind of what motivated you to sort of push through some of your challenges. <laughs> Well, thanks, Katie. And, and Katie and I have known each other since medical school, so yes. we were in the same um, class and then did residency at Good Sam together. Well, well used to be Good Sam. Yes. Um, and, and so uh, um, I went to medical school. I had full intentions of becoming a public health practitioner, um, but fell in love with delivering babies and so decided to apply for a residency in obstetrics and gynecology, um, was accepted to my first choice and just loved it. Um, But about halfway through my first year, I started not to be able to lift my arms. And I wasn't able to raise my my shoulders up. I wasn't able to use my hands. Um, Tended to be worse after long calls and surgery and times of not movement. Um, And ultimately found out through testing and stuff that I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Um, The prognosis based on the lab results that I got um, was that I would have some major deformity or disability within five to 10 years. Um, I was unable, I would get home after shift and was unable to hold my nine month old at that time and really had to make a difficult decision. Do I, do I continue with what I'm doing? Um, because the lifestyle was just not conducive to ultimately the, the disease I had been diagnosed with, um, or because of the love, do I continue it and just see where, where I could get, um, Luckily, I I had some phenomenal mentors and some great friends, both at the College of Medicine and working at the Arizona Department of Health Services prior to um, medical school and um, was able to identify that there was a medical position open. Um, So kind of felt that that led me back to where I where I belonged. I I got to deliver babies and and be with moms and families, but ultimately ended back up where my my calling had been um, for almost my whole life. Um, it's, it's really 
interesting uh, path because I, I still get to talk medicine. I still get to do healthcare issues, but instead of meeting people on a one-to-one basis, um, the entire state is my patient. And so you, you see things from a different perspective. Um, and so that's, that's been a very interesting um, and challenging role as you're looking at how do you treat the entire state of Arizona, but how do you ensure that you know, the needs of vulnerable populations and are, are being met as you're looking at what the health impacts are, as you're making plans for emergency response and preparedness, as you're looking at where are you going to put the limited public health resources that the state has um, into best serving the needs of Arizonans. Just to dive back into your own journey a little bit, did you attempt to push through and request specific accommodations? And can you describe one or two of those accommodations that either tried and failed or tried and succeeded despite your, your calling to go back to DHS? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I initially did try to push through. So I had some phenomenal healthcare providers that were able to help me um, get back to where I could recover and, and, and come back um, to the hospital. Um, ultimately, it, it even with working with programs and, and that it just it proved to be too much. It would take a month and I'd be back to where mm-hmm. I'd get home after a long drive and my husband would have to lift me out of the car and carry me into the house. Um, and, and so as much as I, I tried, I, I'm sure, and a lot of medical students or residents would think this, right? Is it, you know, not having succeeded and coming out of a residency board certified and being able to practice, um, as much as physically I was unable to do that emotionally, I really did want to be able to do that, but it's not what I needed. It's not what my family needed. And so um, it, despite everyone trying to assist and help, it wasn't what I was able to do, unfortunately. Thanks for sharing that very personal piece of your journey. Oh, yeah. I'm going to shift, totally shift gears for a second. Recently, you were really instrumental in bringing the U.S. Surgeon General to campus, mm-hmm. which was awesome. So thank you. This very exciting for the, the campus and the students. Uh, what Can you comment a little bit on how you think Arizona benchmarks kind of against the rest of the country on um, things like providing care for individuals with disabilities? Yes. So, um, you know, I think that there are some things um, that Arizona does very, very well in um, when you look at uh, compared to the nation. So um, we have great cancer rates or like um, our, our more <laughs> not cancer rates. I'm going to say we have a very we have lower mortality from cancer ah. compared to the rest of the nation. We, we have lower smoking rates. We are very good on um, decreasing our smoking rates and our youth uh, tobacco use rates are very good. When you look at things like access to care, I mean, even if you're just looking at the general population, Arizona does not rank well. And especially then finding um, physicians to meet uh, the needs for individuals with disabilities or some of those other populations, it's even harder. So most of the state is a primary care shortage uh, provider area. The entire state is a mental health uh, provider shortage area. So we don't rank very well on even just 
general access to care. Um, one of the things that we identified that we um, had a gap in at the department was when you look at emergency response and, and we, if we had a flooding or we had a wildfire and people needed to be at a shelter, our shelters were not equipped to handle people that may um, mm. or individuals that may be faced with access challenges or um, having their needs met while they were outside of their home or wherever they were residing and now needed to be in a facility. So that is something that we are working on is to develop plans that our emergency response plans do include ensuring that people that have special access needs do have access to what they need at that time, because that's the worst time to try and identify resources is during an emergency. Are there any tangible elements that we can see the Department of Health Services enacting? Like, can we see it in specific ambulances or in the way in which uh, sidewalks are being modified? Or is there something we can see um, where we can see the, the Department of Health Services if efforts being realized? We have been working on our state health assessment, which looks across all various types of data to identify where we take the next Arizona Health Improvement Plan. We will be developing that new plan, but one of the focus areas that we are going to look at in the state health assessment is ensuring how do we improve health equity? So, which is different than health equality, yeah. where you give everybody, it's a one-size-fits-all model, and everybody receives the same thing. What we want is health equity, where everyone receives exactly what they need in order to achieve an optimal outcome. And so you're going to start seeing, we're going to be looking at those social determinants of health, and how do we help people obtain their op their optimum health. And so you'll see that shift there. The other thing that you're going to start seeing is a shift potentially in some of our regulatory issues. So we've been working um, with the governor's office and with our sister agencies to ensure that all facilities um, have adequate, um, that, they, that they meet the needs of the populations that they serve, but that they have the ability for anybody to be able to report if they're being abused, if they're being neglected, if their needs aren't being met, um, and then ensuring that those types of things are being addressed and that everybody has access um, to ensure that they are safe and um, cared for in the manner that they need to be at our regulated facilities. No, definitely look forward to seeing all those changes coming to Arizona and continuing to make it a place for anybody to watch our beautiful sunsets and enjoy our Southwest lifestyle. And have access to the care that they need. That's great. So, Dr. Chris, one final question. If you could share a pearl with us, what would you recommend for medical schools as we train our students to make them better equipped or prepared to care for uh, persons with disabilities? I think it goes back to, to meeting with individuals. And so, again, while I look at the entire state, some of the most helpful information we get is when we have people come and talk with us or work with us on some of the groups and provide that direct feedback. So we've done that with our emergency response um, efforts. We've brought people in from Silk or from from groups around the, the state that can help give personalized feedback. Um, we've also brought in like chronic pain patients in to discuss opioid issues. And so when you really hear what they need from their perspective, 
that's that's helpful and it it changes the way you start to view what your outcome is. And so I would say get involved, but but speak to the people versus thinking you know what people need because I've found I don't. Yeah. That advice seems to be one that shows up in our Reimagine Medicine podcast all the time. It uh, It's just about making sure that you make that personal connection, even if your personal connection is to the entire state. I want to thank both you, Dr. Christ, and uh, Daryl Christensen for uh, joining us today. And uh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you. Katie, every time we do these podcasts, we learn so much more. We learn about the environment in which we deliver care or we do research and are able to take those nuggets, those knowledge nuggets, and bring them back to everything that we are doing on a day-to-day basis. And today's podcast was no exception. I agree. And and I guess that's the that's the beauty of it is we continue to challenge ourselves and, and learn. I thought it was really interesting how there were some very clear common themes between our speakers. Unquestionably, that comment about making sure that all the language we use, whether it's spoken or written, that it's person-first language, that there are people who are uh, living with specific disabilities or overcoming addictions. And what I found interesting between our three guests is that we had a physician with a disability. We have patients with disabilities, and we have a whole state with disabilities, and each one is a patient that has an opportunity to improve their life. Absolutely, and I loved how each of our guests sort of explained how they how they comment that. So when Dr. Chris said, the entire state is my patient, that resonated with me, but they all kind of said it really is about individualized, personalized care, right. um, and every person is so unique and different, and we do need to deliver care specifically for that patient's needs. And, and I can tell you right now, I'm actively trying to watch my words to make sure it is this patient first language. I'm practicing my own cultural competency competency at this point to uh, talk about the state of Arizona may have some issues as opposed to the issues that uh, are uh, troubling the state of Arizona. But uh, some of those things that Dr. Chris talked about where the state of Arizona is going to come out Mm -hmm. with this new plan and is going to have visible Uh, signs of how we're overcoming these disabilities to be able to provide services and access that uh, may be uh, role models in the nation. So one of the things that Dr. Okunlami talked about was disabusing disability, and I really found that fascinating. And I also enjoyed how he managed to sort of let us see the perception from all different angles of thought process. So one of the things he said was that, you know, someone who has a disability does not necessarily consider themselves disabled. And then there is a subset of a person, persons with disabilities who really have a lot of allegiance and feel proud of being part of a group with a group that's labeled disabled. So I think, um, as we've already alluded to, just really making sure that we are on the same page and taking time to understand how we're addressing our patients and caring for them and what their preferences are is is really important and that resonated with me throughout this entire podcast. Unquestionably understanding how each patient or each men, uh, each student or each mentee wants to be treated, uh, the so-called platinum rule, treat someone how they want to be treated rather than how we bring a perception to how they we think they should be treated. And that idea then allows us to 
better serve their basic Absolutely. human needs. And uh, the one that Daryl Christensen was talking about was this idea of employment. And employment doesn't necessarily mean a high-paying job. It just means something to feel connected to mm -hmm. community, to be able to deliver value and worth into the community. And uh, Dr. Okunlami, when he was talking to the College of Medicine as a whole, he was saying that every person has an opportunity to provide something powerful, mm -hmm. unique to the world. We just need to ask them what are their talents and where do they right. want to put their uh, put their talents. Right, and and one of the other things that Daryl said was for for us on the provider side, you know, you're treating a person, not a diagnosis, and. I, and I felt like that was an important piece of that too, just remembering that as we as we educate our students and practice medicine. Yeah, that's an excellent point that it's, uh, the person has their community to support them, but if each physician and healthcare provider mm -hmm. has their community of providers that go to help the entire patient, not just diagnosis or symptom at, at a time. Uh, we just need to continue to talk and listen to each other. Um, I really like the way that Dr. Chris said that although she is dealing with Arizona as her patient, she gets some of the best feedback when she goes down to the single person. Yes. And she goes talk to those people about their uh, their access or their limited access mm -hmm. and how they can overcome it. And that listening tour harkens back to an earlier conversation we had about the VA where they did the same thing mm -hmm. and improved their process. And uh, that cultural competency starts with listening, which is Absolutely. very, very challenging. And that theme, I think, of just making sure that the populations we're treating are represented and at the table for important decision-making is, is huge. And I believe all of our guests discuss that. And Dr. Chris, kind of from an opioid standpoint, um, but also persons with disabilities have much, so much to offer and so much perspective and they should be yeah, present and in leadership and involved in... in yeah, there's two aspects plans. to that, that mm -hmm. the individuals and the providers need to go into the community to listen to their patients. And then the patients need to be at the specific decision-making tables to be, to be able to be represented. Mm -hmm. You know, Katie, these discussions, love having them with you, but uh, we could go on and on, but we're running out of time, yep. and that is our time for today. So lift shits out like a well-functioning GI system. Right out like a good night's sleep. The Reimagined Medicine Podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Join us again as we highlight aspects of clinical care, education, and research in an ongoing endeavor to reimagine medicine. Our podcast team is Dr. Katie Bright, Dr. Johnny Lifshitz, Beth Smith, and the media production team at the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix. Our theme song, Dungeon of Return Days, was written and recorded by Midair Machine. The song is accessible on freemusicarchive.org and used under the CCBYSA 4.0 license.